awareness is not born and awareness doesn't pass away. Okay? So he's, the author of this text is, is starting with one of the highest meditative realizations and meditations that there is of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, is the unborn nature of, of our awareness. That's our meditation. Now, let's try it again. If we have a moon reflected in a pond, is the moon separate from the pond or part of the pond? What would you say? Separate or one with the pond? It's one with the pond, yes? So therefore, the object and the experience appearing in the pond is the pond and has the nature of the pond. What's the conceptual mind saying? Wrong. It's a moon. What is it? It's water. Getting it? That fundamental misconception is really the origin of suffering. It even goes beyond the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths says attachment is the cause of suffering, the cause of suffering, any kind of clinging. But when we come to this realization, which is the unborn nature of awareness, we cling because we don't understand our mind. We don't actually know what our mind is. Therefore, we grasp after appearances of the mind, but we don't experience the freedom of our mind. Is that pretty straightforward? You got it? <laughs> Done? And that's what a bodhisattva experiences. It experiences the mind and doesn't actually get fooled by the objects of the mind. That's the experience. That means, I'm just going to give you a possibility, that means there is an experience that's very profound. Even though all this is happening, nothing's taking place. It's unborn. It never actually happened. Time doesn't happen. It's made by the mind. And all this experience is happening at a relative level, but actually it's generated by the mind. And it has the same properties as the mind, which is freedom. So, Misha's asked a question about freedom. Political freedom is not the same as the freedom of the mind. And we also have to realize, here's a good exercise for you to do. And it may sound funny for a Dharma class, but actually take a piece of paper and write down what you mean as a Westerner by freedom, which shapes every part of our life and shapes the Dharma. So when we use the word freedom and liberation, the the politics may not be free. The institutions may not be free. ATMs are not necessarily free. As some children think, how come you can't just keep getting more and more money out of it? Parents have, some parents have told me, they, the t kids say, why don't you just keep getting more money? It's free, right? But mind is free. And that is where the liberation is. So unless you know mind's nature, 
you chase after the appearances as real things. Okay? That hurts a lot. But that doesn't mean that you don't actually have a relatively good life and you don't do relatively good things. Do you, do you, do you follow? That's really important. Okay. More of that. So you see that all things are beyond coming and going. Yet still, even though you know that, you still strive solely for the sake of living beings to relieve them of suffering. To you, my precious guru, that is to both your guru, your your root guru, your root teacher, and the, the, the embodiment, the, the manifestation of compassion, emptiness, Lord Avalokiteshvara, we offer perpetual, continuous homage, respect, with our body, our speech, and our mind. And body, speech, and mind means all of our um, activities. And the next paragraph, the perfect Buddhas, that is perfectly awakened beings, who are the source of all benefit and joy. Now, really that could be translated perhaps better. The perfect, that is the complete awakened beings who are the source of full benefit and joy beyond our relative temporary happinesses and satisfactions. Make sense? In other words, the fully awakened beings or high bodhisattvas deliver to beings the freedom of their mind because it's always it's always great bliss freedom is great bliss uh, they uh, come into being through accomplishing the sacred dharma so what is the sacred dharma the sacred dharma are the teachings that bring beings to liberation. And the teachers and the community of beings that do that, that's called the three jewels. And since this in turn depends on knowing how to practice, I shall now describe the practices of all the Buddha's heirs. Now, uh, the practice of all the Buddha's heirs is, is code for bodhisattvas. So, you, you see the term you see the term Buddhas and you see the term children of the Buddhas or Buddha's heirs. Uh, all bodhisattvas, all Buddhas are born from bodhisattvas. So it's like lineage. So uh, the, the Buddha is like the parent and the bodhisattvas are like the children. So let me, let me explain. There's a lot in this, as you can imagine. <coughs> From the experience of the unity of emptiness and compassion, which is the first experience of a bodhisattva, the core, the essence of that experience is no different than a fully awakened being. But the scope, the majesty, and the expression is not as full as a fully awakened being. Okay? Let me give you an example. Anybody in the room like wine? Who here in the room likes wine? Okay. Do you all feel that you can taste wine? Who here in the room feels that you can taste wine? Like when you taste it, you go, mmm, yes, I can taste it. But would that be the same experience of tasting wine 
as someone who is a professional wine taster for 20 years of their life and has tasted wines from all over the world and has made that their study. And people pay them quite extraordinary amounts of money uh, to, to taste wine. Is, would that, you see the difference? But that taste is the same kernel of taste. Recognition of taste doesn't change, but the scope and what you can do with that completely changes. Okay. Number one, let's look at this text. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to study, reflect, and meditate. Tirelessly, both day and night, without ever straying into idleness, in order to free oneself and others from this ocean of samsara, having gained the supreme vessel of free, well-favored human life, so difficult to find. You know, I was joking with Misha the other day. I said to Misha, and I was actually serious. I said, Misha, well, I don't know if this text is going to be enough for three <laughs> sessions. I always do that, you know. And then I, and I sort of re, re, you know, I've taught this so many times. And I look at it again and go, wow, that, that could be like a whole class. <laughs> so as I said on Thursday night and a few other times, uh, because of the history of the way the Dharma came to the West, most people approach the Dharma only historically. It's a, it's a modern Western thing, is meditation first. It's not traditional. And it doesn't actually work very well. But, but it's not bad. It's not, not faulting anybody. It's just one of those historic quirks. We'll get through it. It's being changed very slowly, although I don't know if it's, we'll see how we do. But, but the order that's always been taught because it works really well is you study, you get a very clear understanding of what the Dharma is. You study, you hear the Dharma, you reflect on it. And that actually leads to good meditation, which means you actually go somewhere. Uh, so the activity of a bodhisattva is they are continuously, even though they may not appear that way, they may be idly having a coffee. They may be sitting down and having a beer with you. They may be just having a nice time in the garden. But they will be studying the dharmas at the same time. Do you understand what I mean? They're, in other words, they're not being idle. They're not being busy. They're not being dull. They're actually, everything is dharma at this point for a bodhisattva. Everything has dharmas to be unfolded and be understood. And it says tirelessly both day and night. Now, doesn't that sound tiring? Doesn't that sound tiring? It sounds like the opposite, you know. Man, is this exhausting. So if you were to introduce this to all kinds of people that want to meditate and say, well, can you, know, can you give me a meditation, uh, you'll, you'll lose um, maybe 80% of all the people that come for the first class, and then they'll go, you got to be kidding. Uh, but what does this mean? It just means you have to work towards uh, that the, the actual conduct of a bodhisattva is day and night. And how would you know day and night? Well, during the day, you can be studying, you can be practicing, you can be working, but actually your work is a reflection of Dharma. Okay? I've given many talks on this. A lot. But what would the nighttime be like if it was a reflection of Dharma? 
your dreams would change. You'd see your dreams would change, and the actual dreams wouldn't just be about being in a Dharma class or giving a Dharma class, but there'll be something unraveling the suffering of other sentient beings. It doesn't mean it's an awful dream. There will be something in it that is the act of a bodhisattva, even if it's hidden, unraveling the mystery of a illness, the cause of suffering, helping beings. Do you understand? Even if it's maybe helping someone to play golf in a dream. Helping. Helping to relieve suffering. Okay. So day and night. And you might think that that's tiring, but actually uh, it is natural. So we have to understand where this is coming from. Compassion, altruistic behavior, is actually natural. When the mind is free and open, compassion flows naturally without being tired. So, boy, I could speak on this one all day. You've heard the expression in the West, you've heard this expression, my batteries are worn down. Have you all heard this? No? My batteries are worn down? Where did that come from? Who made that up? I love these belief systems. We could do this all day. Where did running down your batteries come from? Ever ready. Ever ready. Yeah, that, all those commercials. Do you know that many, most other cultures don't have that? Traditional cultures don't have that. When you give and you actually do things for people, you increase your energy. Isn't that cool? So there's now cross-cultural ethnographic studies are going around the world challenging that you run down your batteries by doing things for people all day. If you have the concept that you run down your batteries by engaging and doing things for people, what's going to happen? When the whole culture says you're running down your batteries, you're going to get tired and you're going to hurt yourself and be sick, what would happen? You'll get sick. But imagine when you go out there and you help people, and you actually are doing things for people, and you're getting more energy, and everybody's going, you're getting energy, isn't that great? What a worthwhile thing to do. Isn't that neat? So Dharma realization is knowing what a story is, and not just going around and challenging it, but seeing if it's actually true. I'm trying to find the reference. I think it's... I think it may, has anybody really done a really good read of um, Homo Sapiens by Duval? Is it page 25? <laughs> Anyways, somewhere in his book, he quotes an anthropologist or sociologist who has tried to count the number of concepts in a modern human being. And I believe, and I haven't found the reference, but I think it's something like two million concepts about the world floating around in a modern human being's brain that are fiction, they're not, they're not wrong, they're just ideas about how things are. Yeah, okay, so be careful. I say that to scientists all the time too. Be careful about your ideas. They may have no basis in reality except that's the current paradigm. So in order to free oneself, free, that is realize the nature of mind into resplendent openness, and others from this ocean of samsara that is wandering and chasing after uh, grasped uh, uh, things that cause uh, harm and confusion, having gained this supreme vessel, that means a human being, a human body with, with cognition, a free 
well-favored human life so difficult to find. Uh, it feels like human beings are pretty common. It feels like human beings that can actually conceptualize and think about what they're thinking about is a really common phenomenon. It's extremely rare. So 2,000 years ago, they knew that too. Being a human being is a really rare creature on this planet, even with 7 billion. It's infinitesimal to the number of other thinking birds. How many birds? How many birds are killed every year alone in North America? One billion birds are killed every year in North America by mostly windows, plate glass windows, and, and, and cats, um, and other things. The number of human beings that can think about their thinking is extremely rare opportunity. So as teachers sometimes say, jokingly, because many Tibetan teachers have a smile on their face, if it's Burmese, they will be with a fierce expression. It's different cultural things, eh? Thai, Burmese, Tibetans, hey! Human, be human life is really rare. Don't waste it. So the ability to actually reflect on cognition and awareness is an extraordinarily rare thing, but to suffer mentally is not. A dog suffers, a dog has emotions, birds suffer, we suffer, but we think a lot about our suffering. And we try to puzzle over it and figure out what the story is of our suffering. That may not actually be the way out. So let's, let's put it this way. What most people get told of how to get out of their suffering may in fact, from the point of view of 2,500 years of Buddhist meditators and teaching, be not the way. It may relieve some pressure, but it actually doesn't solve the existential problem. Okay. So that's why we do it day and night. Having gained the Supreme Vessel, uh, let's use it well. Number two, that's a practice. So what's the practice? Using this vessel, this being, extraordinarily well. Number two, the practice of all bodhisattvas is to leave behind one's homeland. Woohoo! <laughs> the texts say that. Uh, and where our attachment to family and friends overwhelms us, overwhelms us like a torrent, while our aversion towards enemies rages inside us like a blazing fire and delusions, darkness obscures what must be adopted and abandoned. Again, that's a lot there. At some point, if you really want to liberate, you have to get out of the soup that you're in. And that is not a statement that says your family's bad. It's not a statement that says your society's bad. But to come out and see all of experience differently, one needs time, like being in a laboratory with the right equipment to look differently. That's all. Okay? And you will notice that when you go into family situations, because none of you have this, you're saints, so you have none of this, but family conflict, family beliefs, family stuff, family fighting, uh, cultural stuff, living in a city, doesn't necessarily give you time and the space to look at your awareness for any more than a few seconds 
or a few minutes. So let me give you an example of this. Would anybody, let's say, would anybody here like to be an opera singer? I have to watch that. You know, Future Rebirth is an opera singer. I've had dreams, fully operatic, singing on stage. I love it. <laughs> Complete, you know, great. Would, if you're an opera singer, have to take time out to develop a great voice? If you want to be a professional musician, how many hours a day to get into, let's say, the Zur Zurich or New York Philharmonic? We know, do we know, all know the numbers? Eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. Practicing, 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 practicing. And a good teacher, good mentor. Golf pro? Hours. 400 balls. I've watched a guy with 400 balls shooting them into a tire, one after the other, putting them into a tire, like this. Ding, ding, ding. We have to get out, doesn't mean we leave our family forever. We have to get space to look at that which requires space. Does this make sense? Yeah. That means that all beings who've become bodhisattvas have found the unity of compassion and wisdom as a real, living, natural experience of their mind. Even if they suddenly experienced it when lying on their bed or having a coffee, for them to actually develop it into like a musical instrument, they've had to take time out. They've had to go to a different country. Do you know what I mean? Even in their own country. Doesn't mean they left Tibet, doesn't mean they left Burma. They had to go somewhere away to do the work that takes hours and hours and hours to actually know what they found or discover something. Okay. By the way, that was common in Western society up until about 200 years ago. Many people went and studied in monasteries, convents, and did spiritual practice. Hope you know that. This is a recent phenomena that we don't. All through the East, it's considered the highest occupation and what you do when you retire. So it's, it's only a recent modern phenomena that we don't do that. So when we look at this about leaving behind one's homeland and doing this, as a Westerner we go, are you cracked? Are you crazy? But realize it's a modern Western phenomenon and belief. I've had people argue, argue with me, you can't do a, nobody can do a five-month retreat or six-month retreat. And I just finished one with people. And they go, no, nobody can do that. And actually mad at the idea. It was commonplace and still is commonplace in many places in the world. Okay. Has anybody been overwhelmed like a torrent in the midst of family, business, life events such that one can't even settle their mind? Anybody? <laughs> and do you know that that's a pretty common occurrence for most of millions and millions and millions of people? Time out. So I, fa I, I, I feel like a lone wolf in the wilderness braying out there saying, this has to be done if you want real good uh, experience. When others, so many others are saying, just do it occasionally, you'll, you'll be fine. Y you won't. Nothing's done that way. Okay. But it doesn't mean that occasionally isn't bad. It's good. 
But if you want to up it to where you have confidence about what you discovered, or what, what most of you know, you're going to have to go away and really look at it. And that's where the confidence comes. Okay. So you will not know, this is, this is another strong statement, delusions, darkness, obscures what must be adopted and abandoned. You can't know what to adopt and what to discard unless you have enough space around it. Have you ever tried to tell your friend or a family member they should do this and they're just going, no? No. You've got to do this for your life. No. Not going to do it. When you have enough space and love, loving kindness, when you feel really good and settled, have you noticed how many amazing discoveries just dawn on you? Studies of scientific discoveries show that most really good scientific discoveries happen when the scientists went surfing, not in the lab. It's when they actually went on a trip somewhere or a hike. That's when they have the space to go, oh my goodness, it's been there for a year in front of me. It also happens in the lab too. But actually, if you really want to have a good experience, create space around it. And to have experience about awareness and experience. So let me tell you how this is, why this is difficult, but beautiful. Let's give you some real pure Dzogchen Mahamudra teaching. Okay, ready? Pure meditation. What happens all day long, a million times a day, that feels so comfortable? A million times a day. It feels absolutely comfortable. No, no, even more than that. No, breath only happens 22,500 times a day. Nope. Something that's even more pervasive that you're going to go, of course I know what this is, because it happens all day long. What, what is it? Nope. Sensation. Hmm? Sensation. Infinite sensation of the mind all day long. Isn't that right? And if I go around and ask a normal human being, do you know what a sensation is? I go, of course I do. How about, how about experience? Do you know what? You all have experience, yes? You know what experience is, right? You just go, I'm having it right now. I don't need to study it. I don't need to look at my awareness. I'm having it happen right And everybody knows what it is until you ask them what it is. Now let, let me go around the room and say, what is your awareness? I don't know. But it feels like you know, right? Isn't that a funny feeling? If I said, what's an emotion? You'll say, I know. But if I actually ask you more specific questions, you go, I don't have a clue. If I ask you, what's the nature of your awareness? You're going to go, but that's all you're having all day long. And if you, do, if you do write a scientific paper and it turns out to be reproducible, you know you're going to get a Nobel Prize. Hottest, hottest chased Nobel Prize in probably the world right now. What is the mind? Okay. So feel that. Do you need to know what your mind is and what your awareness is? No. It happens all day long. But where does everything happen? And where does suffering happen? And where does happiness happen? 
in your mind, but you don't know what mind is because we're not culturally told to look at it. We're told to meditate, but that's not mind. That's calm. That's the, a phenomena, a sensation of calm. Getting it? This is really high. This is, this is the meditation. <laughs> the wall, the firewall that's blocking the experience of liberation is so thick and yet the mind is right there. So could you imagine being a fish in the ocean and when someone says to you, I've been out of the ocean, I saw uh, uh, cars and people and palm trees and I know what a banana is and, and I know what a pineapple is, you go, you're cracked. <laughs> we live, and you don't even know you live in water. So being a human being and having the experience of awareness and phenomena, sensations, as Laurel said, it's all sensations is like being a fish in water and never looking at the water. This is Dharma. The realization is the nature of the water, not as a scientific answer, but as something that dawns and creates a space of incredible freedom. Like, you've, like the first breath. I told you about breath, yes? Bodhisattvas breathe for others. What do they breathe? freedom. They breathe the experience of freedom for others as opposed, the expo as opposed to halitosis. That's a joke. I had to put that in. Or sweet breath. With breath mints? Okay. Imagine breathing every breath of freedom out of a love of sentient beings. Every breath and to relieve sentient being suffering with every breath. Breath is exchange. I was going to try to get through um, <clears throat> 12 of these. So we have, uh, we have seven minutes this morning to, to do that. Um, so this darkness, when they talk about the darkness that obscures that which must be adopted and abandoned, what kind of darkness? The darkness of the nature of awareness and mind. That's the darkness. That's the darkness. It's like being in a lit room, but not knowing you're in a lit room. One doesn't know the mind's already illuminated. Uh, it's already free. Number three. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to take to a solid is to take to solitary places. That is, away from the chatter and the stories that reinforce uh, uh, concepts. We want to actually let concepts concepts fall. We also need to be healthy to do that. Mentally healthy, although it's very scary. To go into retreat, people have told me, "I'm not going into retreat. You'll never get me in retreat." Mm -hmm. I've heard people say that. You'll never get me in retreat. No way am I going to be by myself, with myself. They're not comfortable in this body and this experience for anything longer than 20 minutes or five minutes. I'm, I'm serious. That's a very frightening experience, to be alone in this, in this uh, experience. 
So unless we get to solitary places where we, we have enough time, enough space to let phenomena unbind, it's kind of like Misha putting his head over the window where you're trying to unbind or take care of the drape there, you know? You need time to, to let go of all the stuff, the hard, crusty bits. Hmm? And that's why most people don't really want to meditate and study Dharma. Why? Because they know they have to go and let go of crusty bits of concepts that are not comfortable. But every time we let go of the crusty bits, we get the sweet stuff on the inside called bliss. Every time we let go of crusty stuff, we have a period of freedom and release that's incredible. And then we discover more crusty bits. Avoiding the unwholesome so that destructive emotions gradually fade away. One has to have time to let things settle. And in the absence of distraction, virtuous practice naturally gains strength. That is the 37 factors of enlightenment, which is uh, one of the texts I've given you here and commentary. Uh, so these 37 factors uh, need time to gain hold and gain strength. Whilst with awareness clearly focused, we gain conviction in the teachings, in Dharma, um, in the essence of Dharma. So we don't trust Dharma until we actually experience freedom for ourselves. So nobody trusts Dharma. Let me just be honestly nice. Nobody trusts the, the actual teachings of Dharma until they own freedom of their own mind, because that's what Dharma is. Dharma is not made up by the Buddha. Dharma is not made up by teachers. Dharma is an expression of the intrinsic freedom of the mind that gets written down in books and gets spoken orally. But you can't own it until you know it. Does that, that make sense? In every walk of life, everything we do is like that. Everything that we do, we can't own it until we become very familiar and comfortable with its essence. Has anybody, ever, anyone here ever tried to teach something that you don't know well? Who, who here has tried to teach something you don't know well? And you kind of have read the book half an hour beforehand or, or watched the YouTube video on it, and now you're going to give a class or a demo, and you're going to give a demo on engine maintenance, but you've just watched a YouTube, I'm really on about cars today, and watch a YouTube video. Have you ever felt what that's like as you kind of get the idea, but you don't own it? You know that feeling? Like, like cooking your first recipe? You're looking at the recipe and you're kind of going, uh, but you've done it, maybe you've made waffles or pancakes 400 times, and now you own it like you can play a symphony. Do you know that feeling? So Dharma isn't believed. You'll always be checking Dharma books and podcasts. Always. What did they say? Do they have the secret teaching, the essence? Until you own it and can express it because it's a living experience. That's Dharma. That's the Dharma. Freedom. Just the freedom, not the political freedom, not the social freedom. That's always changing, by the way. 
Have you noticed that in the world? Always changing. Freedom of this experience. Yeah. All experience. All sensation is free. Ever had a bad sensation? Who here has had a bad sensation? It's like testing for robots. You know, there's no difference between the taste of a bad sensation and the taste of a good sensation. They both have the same taste. They have different concepts about them. So if you don't know that freedom and have a taste of that freedom, you don't really trust what should be adopted in life and what should be abandoned. It's not really clear. And that's called the big wisdom. That which should be adopted, taken up, and that which should be gotten rid of is a very high level of wisdom. It's not the nature of mind, but it is the study. It is the practice. It's the main practice. If, uh, if the awareness is not clearly focused for long enough, the mind is too turbulent and murky to see the mind's freedom. That's, that's why. If you're very calm, and even if you have no thoughts, that's a good practice, but becomes the impediment to see the nature of the mind. So we first of all have to develop calm, but we need teachings to look through the calm. One minute to to to. Could you go through that last what you were just saying ah, again? Yes. I'm sorry. So, if you, it's natural, if you want to feel good, let's say you're let's say you're let's say you're a busy. Anybody here a busy urbanite? Okay. What does a busy urbanite naturally want to do at the end of the day, when they've been thinking most of the day? What do they want to do? Turn it off. And what is the, bless its heart, because there's lots of good positives about this, the wellness, the meditation movement saying, if you turn it off, you'll feel better, correct? Right? Isn't that completely natural? Okay. But it doesn't give you insight into the nature of, of experience. It doesn't give you the nature of freedom. It gives you a way of stopping that which feels like the root of affliction when it's not the root of affliction. What's the root of affliction? Not knowing the nature of awareness. So, when you get into good meditative states, which I all hope you do, that is, I all hope you have a good teacher and you learn how to settle the mind. I, I, I do, I pray. You have to do this. Okay. When you settle the mind and you feel really good, because when you settle the mind, you're going to go like this, right? It's not quite like Angry Birds, but you know the, you know the one that, that smiles? You know, and I, I haven't played it for a long time. My mother played it a lot, but Angry Birds and the, and the bird that goes like this? When you feel really open and good and relaxed and your mind settles, it feels darn good. Except for that small population of people where it doesn't, they feel more anxious because they have, bless their heart, anxiety or depression disorder. Okay. Guess what happens? You fall in love with the sensation of relaxation. And here's the myth, because it's natural. If you just keep doing that, I'll have it all the time. 
But guess what? The universe isn't like that. The universe is a very busy place, correct? So it's not the answer, but it's pretty good training. But unless you receive the Dharma and the teachings about the nature of mind, it's going to become a wall and a hindrance. Because as they say in Tibet, it becomes like zombie meditation, right? So you sit here like this, no thoughts, but you're not doing anything. It feels like you're doing the right thing, but it doesn't go anywhere, all right? I'm speaking of 2,500 years of tradition. So what happens is the training feels like the answer, but it was never more than the training. So in other words, you play scales thinking that you've actually playing the concerto. Or you're playing scales where you want to improvise freely but you feel like you're, impro you're going to get to improvising by just playing scales. Does, does it make sense? When in fact, someone needs to bust you out to say, just play. Just, just play and discover the nature of playing music. The nature of playing music. So if a bodhisattva was meditating, what would that process look like? Depending on the level of the bodhisattva realization, it will go anywhere from trying to find the natural mind residing in its natural awareness, which is neither active nor settled, just is, open. Do you hear the word that? Unobstructed is the nature of mind, not settled, not active. The degree to which you know that and have contemplated it is a degree to which you can actually dwell in that, which means you can either be active or settled, and they're both the same taste. They doesn't matter anymore. Have you heard the birds? They're pretty busy. Do you think the birds affect your mind's nature? They affect your physiology. They don't affect your mind's nature. Do you think there's any difference between whether you're comfortable or uncomfortable in this class? It doesn't affect your mind's nature. It affects your concepts of who you are. That should be cool. You should be like, well, I'm not going to say what you should do. But if I heard that, I'd be clapping. I, I, not because I said that. This is just Dharma. It doesn't, matter if a, it doesn't matter if there's an explosion, your mind doesn't change. Only the con habitual concepts around the explosion change. Therefore, you have a physiological response and a mental idea of the, of the explosion. Does that, does that make sense? But the mind actually doesn't. That's what you have to find. The first line, you see that all things are beyond coming and going. That's the discovery. The unborn nature of awareness can have anything happening. Yeah? Anything happening. It's the same brilliant, free mind of compassion. That's the meditation for a bodhisattva. And breathing that to other beings. I think that's a good place to, unless you've got some questions, 
We've got to number four. Well, we've just started number four. Gosh, I thought I just whizzed through that this morning. Do you understand? You have to find mind. Not eventually, first of all, you have to find the calm mind and the freedom in the calm mind. Most people don't, bless their hearts, they stay in a calm experience, as Laurel said, a sensation. We gotta go beyond the sensation to what is the mind like under any given sensation. It doesn't change. It's like the taste of wine. By the way, you know what? Coffee is all the same for those lovers of coffee. It's all the same taste, but one billion variations. So much of our thinking is structured around our perception of things. So the bomb goes off, our body, you know, we have a physiological reaction to it, which feeds through to our brain, and we feel this anxiety or fear or surprise or whatever. But you don't have to. There's no, nothing saying that you actually have to have that, especially if you've lived in Antigua a long time. Uh, you don't actually have to have that reaction. It actually can feel pleasurable. How many people here in the room have had an experience where they've had something that's conceptually hurts, but you actually feel um, pleasure? <laughs> pleasure. Did you feel pain? Because you're an empathetic being. But you actually don't have to. Because that didn't hurt. It sounded pretty loud, didn't it? It sounded like a bomba. Sound like a bomba going off. And later on, I'll scream when I find out I have a broken bone. But have you, have you ever had that experience of a delayed reaction where you're looking? I once cut my hand. I was using a, you know those little Dremel drills? Yeah. And I was working on something in my teacher's house under his room in, in a bit of darkness. I don't know why. But... You know that Dremel tool with a, it's a saw blade, it's a wood saw blade with teeth? It's not like a little thing, it's got little teeth on it. And I was cutting a piece of wood to do something, and it slipped. You know how it goes, and it ran here, went, and went, like that. And I remember going, and then the blood went, you know, like that, and went all over the place. And I remember sitting there going, wow, that is so cool. It just kind of exploded. <laughs> and then, you know, went, oh, that really hurts. <laughs> so how you react is conceptual, but if a whole society tells you how you're supposed to react, it's a very deep belief system. Do you, do you understand? I loved reading in the biography of I think it was Kenzie Rinpoche, great saint from Tibet, who died a number of years ago, or Dujo Rinpoche, when he had to have knee surgery. He said, no anesthetics, nothing, I want to watch. And they said, people in the room said, he just smiled all the way through it and just observed and it was open, open, complete knee surgery. And just don't, don't do anything, just, just let me watch and pay attention. And he was smiling through it. And it's okay. So, so Remember, the, the, sensate, the, the belief systems affect us physiologically and extremely deeply. You shouldn't be happy about this. You will be like this. You shouldn't be like this. Do you understand? 
but but it doesn't matter. You the the awakening is beyond all concepts. What's the mind like in its completely natural, unobstructed, uncontrived mode? That's liberation. And that's why we need space to let it dawn. It dawns, by the way. It usually dawns when you're not trying so hard to do this. You have to do this to play the scales. But when you play music, when the music dawns, it's usually because you took a pause and went, oh my God, it's free. <laughs> okay. Usually. I think that's funny. That's the meditation. That's the meditation of bodhisattvas for everybody. For everybody. Let's uh, finish with a, a, quick, a quick but deep uh, dedication of all the three cycles of Dharma. And when we dedicate, we make an aspiration, we do this for uh, the, the heartfelt liberation of all sentient beings that are also going through what we go through. By this powerful activity of the uh, listening of Dharma, the teaching of Dharma, the sharing of Dharma, may it lead to the cessation of the uh, suffering, the floods of all sentient beings. Idante punyakamang asawaki wang ho tu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wang ho tu. May all sentient beings have relative happiness and relative good health. And may all sentient beings discover and learn to abide in the natural freedom of the mind, which is the unity of emptiness and compassion as a great gift for all sentient beings, all life forms. Sarvamangalam, Sarvamangalam, Sarvamangalam. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome.